Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. It's just me today. I thought I would talk about evolutionary psychology again. I think this is number four in a series of different podcasts on evolutionary psychology. There's just so much to talk about that I couldn't fit it all into one episode, and I, and I thought I would just make a bunch of different episodes about it. But before I go on, I just want to let you know that you can go to psychologyinseattle.com and click on the various different tabs and, and look at the various different stuff, including the Contact Us page, which allows you to send us a message. We always love hearing from our listeners, so please do so if, if you feel so compelled. Also, you can go to the Support Us page and learn how to support the podcast. Without your support, we will dwindle and die. So if you don't want us to die and you want us to stay alive, please show your support in some visible way. All right. So evolutionary psychology. Um, there's a lot I can say about it, and I've said a lot about it in previous episodes. But basically, in a nutshell, according to me, and you know, I'm not the only one in the world, so uh, this is just my humble opinion. According to me, evolutionary psychology, the science is sound in my mind. But the conclusions, 99%, if not 100% of the conclusions that I have read in evolutionary psychology have major problems. And not only just politically, which they often do, but, but just even scientifically. It's a very difficult thing to prove that we have evolved genes that shape the brain and create particular psychological mechanisms that compel behavior today. It's very difficult to prove that. It doesn't mean that they aren't there. I'm, I'm sure they are there, in my opinion. But it's just difficult to determine what they are and, and, and how they operate. So a very easy psychological mechanism, just to, just to explain to people what evolutionary psychology is, a very simple one is food cravings. It stands to reason that early humans, uh, 100,000, 200,000 years ago, who lived in Africa, had a very difficult time finding high caloric foods. Hunting game was probably very difficult. Finding delicious berries with lots of sugar in them were, were probably... Uh, was probably difficult. Therefore, humans who had a craving for these foods would be more likely to seek them out because they are very useful to nutrition. You can pack a lot of calories into a grape. You know, it stands to reason that early humans had a very difficult time finding high caloric foods and salty foods. Therefore, the individuals who had evolved a psychological mechanism to compel them to seek out those high caloric food would be more likely to survive because they have an urge to wander across the field for a mile or so to get the goodies. Whereas those individuals who did not have a craving for those things would just sit around eating all the crappy, bland uh, low caloric food and might not be as healthy because they're not getting enough calories into their body uh, and salt as well. Um, we're, you know, we have both cravings for fatty foods, for uh, sugary foods and, and for salty foods because presumably these things were relatively scarce on the African Pleistocene savanna. So fast forward to today, and we find that we still have these cravings, even though salty foods and fatty foods and high caloric foods and sugary foods are in abundance because of modern technology. Um, 
I live near a convenience store and that convenience store is packed with probably millions of calories of things that I crave, salt and sugar and fat, and it's all very cheap. So as a result, we have humans who are gaining more and more weight. The rates of obesity in the United States is higher than it's ever been, and it appears to just be getting worse because we have a genetic disposition to crave these things because, again, 100,000 years ago, they were scarce, and now they're abundant. And even though we know that these things are bad for us because we learned that, we can't help ourselves. It's, it's such a powerful compulsion to consume salty and fatty and sugary foods that we get sick and sometimes even die as a result because we can't help ourselves. So this is evidence of a psychological mechanism that we evolved in ancient times. And the psychological mechanism could be described as a craving of salty foods, fatty foods, and and sugary foods. And that this psychological mechanism kicks in when we come into contact with these sorts of foods. You're sitting at your desk at work and you're not even thinking about food. And then suddenly someone comes in and shoves a box in your face full of donuts and says, do you want a donut? Well, your psychological mechanism for wanting sugary foods kicks in right away and says, yes, you want that. You want that donut. Eat that donut. And another part of your brain, uh, the prefrontal cortex is, is saying, uh, no, 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 uh, this is not good for you. You do not need this. It's only, you know, it's only going to be like two minutes of pleasure. And this is going to amount to about half the calories, if not all the calories that you should be eating today. So no, do not eat this. This is not good for you. And how many people actually eat the donut? I would say a lot, if not most Americans will say, yeah, I'll eat the donut. So even though we know it's bad for us, even though we have eaten donuts before and regretted it, when that happens to us, a lot of us grab for that donut and shove it in our face. Why is that? Well, it's, again, because we evolved a psychological mechanism that responds to that stimulus in that particular way. Sugary food in front of our face, shove it down our mouth. <laughs> um, now, so that's a fairly easily accepted, in my mind, psychological mechanism. However, evolutionary psychologists tend to make claims about other psychological mechanisms that are a lot more difficult to substantiate. Things like men are attracted to younger females. There's an idea in evolutionary psychology that men evolved a psychological mechanism to be attracted sexually to young, younger women as opposed, as opposed to older women. And women have evolved a psychological mechanism to be attracted to dominant, socially dominant men. So these, you know, are things that are perhaps in our culture easy to accept because it is consistent with stereotypes. But when it comes to substantiating them with evidence, it's very difficult to do that because the arch nemesis of evolutionary psychology is culture and learning. It's totally possible that culture teaches children and adolescent people that women are supposed to be attracted to dominant men and men are supposed to be attracted to younger women. Um, it's not as if they take a class like dating 101 in high school and they say, here's what you're supposed to do. 
doesn't work that way. Culture instructs us, socializes us through very subtle but extremely pervasive and effective ways that are not explicit. But sometimes they are explicit. Um, anyway, so in a lot of the reading that I did with an evolutionary psychology, they did not mention at all the issue of culture and learning because I, in my opinion, this is just my humble opinion. I think they want it. They don't even want to acknowledge culture because as soon as the idea of culture comes up, it completely negates their arguments because they're on such shaky ground scientifically anyway, that I think they think if they even acknowledge culture as a, as a legitimate factor in people's lives, that they're going to be out of a job essentially, and they'll never get published. Um, so I think they just ignore it and I hope that no one notices that they're ignoring it. But a lot of people are beginning to notice, including me, that they're ignoring it. And that's irresponsible, I think. Uh, and sometimes they, they respond to it, but I would say usually ineffectively. So again, just, just to reiterate, I'm not hostile to evolutionary psychology. I'm, I actually like the science and, and I, I like to listen to a lot of the different luminaries within evolutionary psychology, Steven Pinker, David Buss, Cosmides and, and Tubi, Richard Dawkins. All these people I have respect for. And many of the things they say, I'm nodding my head and saying, okay, I can go with that. But many of their conclusions are problematic, and I'll get into that. Uh, so let's get to one of the studies that I read. Uh, this, this study was on flirting and attraction, and it was written by Frisbee, Dillo, Gahan, and Nordland in 2011 in the journal called Sex Roles. Their article was called Flirtatious Communication, an Experimental Examination of Perceptions of Social Sexual Communication Motivated by Evolutionary Forces. So right away you see uh, in their title they're talking about flirting and evolution. So according to mainstream evolutionary psychology, and I call it mainstream because it's, it's really the dominant view within evolutionary psychology, but not all within evolutionary psychology have this point of view. So, so according to mainstream evolutionary psychology, all humans, regardless of culture, evolved universal psychological mechanisms in the form of interpersonal needs for the ultimate purpose of reproduction. So uh, in other words, they believe that all humans uh, around the globe, regardless of where they're born, um, regardless of the culture, everyone is born with a disposition that drives particular behaviors in the effort of trying to reproduce. And flirting is one of those things. So basically what they're saying is we're born with a disposition to flirt because it facilitates reproduction. And that ancient humans, early humans that did not have this disposition were selected out of the gene pool because they did not compete as well as those individuals that did have the disposition to flirt. So you have two groups of people in the ancient tribe, in the uh, African Pleistocene savanna. You have one tribe where they flirt and feel compelled to flirt, and you have another group of people who don't have that compulsion to flirt. And the people who have the compulsion to flirt are much more likely to engage in behaviors that eventually lead to sex and sex leads to babies, which leads to you propagating your genes. And the other tribe that doesn't have the disposition to flirt, they don't have the 
they, they don't have sex as much, presumably, because they don't do the behaviors that lead to sex, which leads to the propagation of one's genes. And therefore, the tribe that uh, flirts is, after a number of generations has more children in the world, and those are the people that we evolved from, presumably. So as you can see, there's a lot of assumptions in evolutionary psychology about what social life was like. And it's very difficult to substantiate those claims because we don't have a time machine to go back and observe what early humans did. But anyway, that, that's, that's how the theory goes, in my words. So another theory is worth mentioning at this point uh, before moving on that the authors uh, talk about here. And that, that theory is called parental investment theory. This is a common theory in evolutionary psychology and one that I think has pervaded the lay culture as well. According to parental investment theory, men are attracted to physical beauty and youth since these characteristics signal fertility and health, which are essential features for women to, to produce offspring. So in other words, men evolved psychological mechanisms to compel them toward women who exhibit beauty and youth, whatever beauty is, by the way, but anyway, who exhibit physical beauty and youth, since these characteristics are generally correlates with health and reproduction. In other words, if you have a old woman who has a lot of physical malformations of some sort, like, you know, it doesn't have two arms or something, that this is evidence of genetics gone wrong and therefore mating with that individual will be less productive in terms of uh, having healthy babies and therefore men evolved to not be attracted to older malformed women. <laughs> I don't know the word for it, but um, not beautiful women. And again, whatever beautiful means. Now, I'm not saying I agree with this because I actually don't. But um, I mean, on its surface, I, I, I do I do agree with it, that it makes total sense that men and women evolved psychological mechanisms that compel them to be sexually attracted and romantically attracted to people who are likely to produce healthy offspring. But beyond that, in terms of making any specific claims about what that means, becomes extremely difficult because throughout history and you know when you look across cultures, attraction is not universal, even though evolutionary psychologists would like to believe that. I mean, just one fact that comes to mind, and there are probably hundreds, the Rubenesque women issue of, I can't remember the exact century, but, you know, two, 300 years ago in Europe, it was beautiful for women to be what we would call today to be overweight. Uh, if you look at these old paintings of beautiful women in Europe, they're universally not as skinny as the women who are models today. So how does evolutionary psychology explain that? If we have a, an innate psychological mechanism to be attracted to thin women, as they propose, then why was that culture so obsessed with women who were not thin? So it appears that beauty changes. Why? Because of culture. If you and I were born in that time in Europe, we would likely consider that to be beautiful if we don't already, depending on the culture you're born into, uh, that will determine what you consider to be beautiful. So anyway, that's, that's a parental investment theory from the men attraction side, but from the women's side, it's according to parental investment theory, 
women are attracted to men's resources and dominance as opposed to beauty and youth. So women are attracted to resourceful and dominant men since these characteristics signal the man's ability to protect the women and her offspring. So again, according to this theory, early humans evolved the psychological mechanisms that compelled women to be turned on and to be interested romantically in men who are dominant and men who have a lot of resources because these characteristics signaled the man's ability to take care of her and her children. I imagine you've heard this theory before. It's, it's very common and it's an evolutionary psychology theory. So consequently, when men are trying to attract females, according to this theory, they will display their dominance and their ability to obtain resources, you know, like having a flashy car or by being a tough guy. Whereas women, supposedly, when they try to attract men, will try to appear young and beautiful and thin and able to have children. And this is what attracts men. So just a little comment on that. Again, it's very difficult to determine whether or not that's genetically determined or culturally determined. Are we teaching women that in order to survive in the world, since we pay them less, that they need to hook up with someone that earns money because in our society, everyone knows that women earn less than men, even when they're just as capable, even when they're just as competent, even when they're more competent than men at the same job, they will earn less. So are we teaching young girls that in order to survive in life, they have to hook up with a resourceful man because, because our society is going to oppress the girls and their ticket to a better life is through the man. And are we perhaps teaching young boys that in order to have dominance, in order to be a successful man, you have to have a beautiful woman on your arm. And that if you have an ugly woman, quote unquote ugly, woman on your arm, people will see you as less successful. Do we teach boys that having beautiful things like beautiful cars, uh, beautiful homes, and beautiful wives, uh, do we teach boys that when they possess these things, it, it, it raises their status in our society? I would say the answer to these questions is absolutely yes. We definitely teach our children these things. So when we look at human behavior in the States and around the globe, and we see that men tend to marry younger women, and, and that women tend to be attracted to men who have more earning potential, so to speak, that when we see that, uh, what's the interpretation? Is it genetics or is it because of our culture? And of course, evolutionary psychologists would say, oh, well, obviously it's genetics. Obviously, early humans evolved this psychological mechanism and we're, we're just seeing the modern representation of that instinct. And perhaps they're right, but that's extremely difficult to prove because you always have culture there. You always have culture as a major factor, if not the factor, in determining that difference between men and women. So getting back to this study, again, Frisbee, Dillow, Gahan, and Nordland in 2011, they had 252 undergraduate students in the United States view a flirtatious role-played interaction and rated the flirter on a number of scales. So the way that this worked was they, they had a small group of actors act out a flirtatious interaction, and then they videotaped it, and then they took these videotapes and showed it to these 
participants and asked the participants to, to rate the role player's attractiveness. And they also, before looking at the videos, they asked the participants to rate the attractiveness of the individuals uh, just by looking at their picture. So what they found was that depending on the way that the individuals flirted, that the flirters in the role play would actually be seen as more attractive after the participants saw the flirter flirt. So let me, uh, but I'll get into that in a second. So in short, in summary, after analyzing their data, the authors claim that they're finding support the parental investment theory and other common evolutionary psychology understandings of, of flirting. They, they found that men flirters, so the men in the role play, that men flirters were perceived by women respondents as more dominant when flirting for sexual reasons. So let me just tease this out. So when women were watching a video of a man who was flirting for sexual reasons, they rated that man as being more dominant. So it's sort of interesting. It's like you have a man in the room and he's, he's flirting for sexual reasons. He's not trying to demonstrate dominance by being hostile or displaying dominance in some way. He's just trying to flirt sexually with another woman. And uh, a, a raider who is just watching the interaction, she is watching the male. And because he's flirting sexually, she begins to see him as more dominant. So it's just sort of an interesting finding. Um, and I don't know exactly what that means, but evolutionary psychologists, according you know, in this, the authors of this article say, well, this is clear evidence of parental investment theory. And I, I don't know, I just don't really see it. They also found that women flirters who flirted for sexual motivations were perceived by men respondents as more attractive than in the original evaluation of physical attraction. So in other words, they gave a picture of the woman to the men prior to looking at the video, and they said, rate her attractiveness. And so, you know, say they give her a, a five out of 10. And then they watch the video, and they watch this same woman flirting. Uh, in a sexual way with the men. And afterwards, on average, the men rated the woman as more attractive than originally. So the average, say, was five before the video. And then after she flirts, they, they rate her as a seven. So why would that be? Um, she, you know, her physical characteristics haven't changed. But because of her behavior, they suddenly now see her as more attractive. So it's an interesting finding, I, I, I think. It's interesting data, but what does it mean? Does it point toward evolution and dispositions and genetics, or does it point to culture and learning? And very difficult question to answer in my mind. So what their conclusion about these data is that this is in line with the commonly held evolutionary psychology understanding that men face problems in identifying females who are sexually available, and that when women flirt for sexual motivations— they may be perceived as available and therefore they don't require as much energy in order to have sex with and therefore reproduce with. So let me just expand on this a little bit. Um, so this is the theory. And again, it, it's, it's, it's offensive and uh, I think sexist and stereo, stereotyping people, but here we go. So basically the theory goes that this is all under parental investment theory that early humans in the Afri African Pleistocene savanna that early humans evolved a early men evolved a psychological mechanism to, that compelled them to be more attracted to females who were 
flirting sexually. Because when a man is looking at two different females and one female is not flirting sexually and the other one is, the, the man does this computational math essentially and says, ooh, the, the woman who's flirting sexually must be more horny and more available for sex. And I could have sex with both women, but one woman is going to require a lot less energy. And I only have so much energy to, to spend, you know, because I have to also gather food and survive the winter and whatever, you know, there's, there's all these different things that you spend your energy on and you can't spend all of your energy into one thing. And so you're thinking, well, uh, this, this woman is flirting sexually. She must, she's, she's going to require less energy to have sex with and therefore have children with. So I am going to uh, have sex with her. So the idea is, is that this isn't a conscious thing. The idea is, is that men who had the disposition to be compelled toward the sexually flirting woman would be more likely to have children and therefore pass on that disposition of being sexually attracted and compelled towards women who are exhibiting sexual flirtatious behavior. Now, stands to reason, it's certainly logical when you look at evolution, but again, difficult to prove. And, and also, it's, it's a pretty offensive way of looking at it, in my mind. The idea, again, because it's a stereotypical way of looking at men, the idea goes that men are trying to spread their sperm onto as many eggs as possible. And, and that's my way of putting it. That's not their way of putting it. But essentially, that's what a lot of evolutionary psychologists will say, that because men have billions and billions of sperm and women have very few eggs, women have to be very careful about who they have sex with because if they want the father to stick around and take care of the child with the mother to you know, share in the parenting, the woman has to be very careful about who they choose to have sex with. The woman has to make sure that the man has the resources and the dominance and the disposition to stick around. Uh, whereas men can be completely indiscriminate about how, who they have sex with because men can have sex five times a day with a different woman and they only need some of their children to survive in order to pass on their genes with their children. So according to the evolutionary psychologists, mainstream evolutionary psychologists, they believe that through selective processes, through evolution, it selected for a psychological mechanism in men to want to have sex with all women all the time and to not necessarily care about settling down because they can have sex with lots of different women and have babies with lots of different women. Whereas women evolved a psychological mechanism to be very choosy about who they have sex with and to not be as indiscriminate about who they have sex with. So when we look at traditional American behavior, we certainly see that this is true among uh, men and women, not the evolution part, but the behavior part, that women tend to be less promiscuous than men, men cheat more than women do, this sort of thing. And so when you uh, make up the evolutionary story that we evolved this, then you look at our modern society, it, it all seems to match up. But here's the thing. As our society is changing and women are becoming more equal with men and women are working more and earning more money, we're starting to see these statistical differences between men and women level out. We're starting to see, for instance, one statistic that's changing is that women are starting to cheat as much as men do. The, the, you know, the old belief was that 
men's cheat because they're trying to spread their billions of sperm all over the place. Whereas women wouldn't cheat because they only have one egg every, every month and they don't need to cheat because as long as they have at least just one man, then they're good. Now there's other theories within evolutionary psychology as to why women would cheat, but in, in, in a nutshell, essentially that's, that's uh, a summary. But what we're starting to see now is as the roles of men and women are starting to equalize they're but they're nowhere near equal yet, but they're getting there. Uh, as men and women's roles become uh, more similar, we're starting to see similar numbers when it comes to sexual behavior. Now, does this mean that men and women are exactly the same when it comes to sex? I suspect not. But how different are men and women really? Uh, and in what way? It's difficult to tell. So getting back to the study by Frisbee, Dillo, Gahan, and Nordland, they also had some data that contradicted parental investment theory. They found that male dominant flirting was not related to women respondents' ratings of the flirter's physical attraction. So in other words, when men in the videotape were flirting in a dominant way, were displaying their dominance, women did not rate those men as more sexually attractive, as more physically attractive. So um, this flies in the face of the mainstream evolutionary psychology belief that women are turned on by men who are dominant. So what did the authors do? You know, they, they could have said, hmm, maybe our theories have a, have a problem in it. No, that's not what they said. This is what they said, and I quote, While it may be true that women unconsciously choose dominant male partners because of survival of their offspring, they may not report that they actually prefer men who behave in a dominant fashion. So this quote is so egregious to me um, and so massively unscientific. So let me just explain what they're saying here. They identify that their data does not match up with the evolutionary psychology theory that women are attracted to dominance. And so what they're saying is, is that, well, we all know that women are attracted to dominant men, but women may not report that they're attracted to dominant men. So they're saying that even though the data doesn't show it, even though women didn't respond in this way, we know they really are attracted to dominant men. I mean, what? So what about the other data? I mean, if, if, this, if, if one particular finding isn't in line with your theory, so, you know, they have four or five things, and, and, and four of them support their theory, and one of them doesn't. And with the four that do, they say, well, clearly the data supports the theory, so there you go. And the one that doesn't, they say, well, we all know that the women would have responded that in a different way if they were just being more honest. So I hope you understand the problem with that. You can't look at some data in a certain light and then other data and say, oh, well, because we don't like this, we're just going to say that we know the women were not responding in a way that was honest. Or women don't know themselves well enough to know that they really are turned on by dominant men. And as I say this, it, it even sounds double sexist because they're basically saying that women don't know what they want and don't know how to fill out a survey form and lie or something, deceive so any responsible researcher and author would say, we have some data that supports our theory, but we have some data that doesn't. And we don't know what to make of that. Maybe our theory is wrong. Maybe we need to look into this more. Maybe things are changing. Maybe the culture is changing. And we're going to see that women are less attracted to dominant men as time goes on. 
maybe women's attraction to dominant men in the past was merely culture. And as our culture changes, women's attraction changes over time. And it's not actually a genetically determined thing, but in fact, just a, a social construction. Now, again, I'm not saying that men and women don't have psychological mechanisms about flirting and about attraction to each other. I'm just saying it's extremely difficult to prove what those are. It's extremely difficult to, if not impossible really, to tease out culture from genetics. So another critique of this article regards their claim that particular flirting behaviors are innate because they have found similar flirting behaviors in younger females. So let me just go into detail about what they're saying. So they argue that the way in which men and women flirt as adults is instinctual, that women flirt in a particular way and men flirt in a particular way because we evolved to flirt that particular way. So in order to say that, you have to say it isn't culturally based. And the way that they prove, so to speak, that it it isn't based on culture is by identifying two evidences. One is that it's found that adolescent females tend to flirt similarly to adult females. So first off, that doesn't prove anything because teen girls have been socialized for many years prior to being a teenager and therefore will express a lot in regards to culture in the same way that adult women will. So to say that, well, clearly flirting behaviors are innate because not only are 22-year-old women flirting in a particular way, but 14-year-old girls are flirting in the same way. So clearly this is genetic. I mean, that's just ridiculous. The second thing is, is they argue that gender stereotypical flirting is innate since gender differences in flirting are clearly established by the age of three. So now we're getting further back in time, closer to time frames that might exhibit genetically determined traits. But, but let's, let's really look at this statement. And, and if I was just reading this passively, I'd go like, oh, okay, I, I can buy that. But let's just really look at this statement. They're saying that gender differences are seen in the way that three-year-olds flirt. Now, what is flirting anyway? If they're looking at three-year-olds, quote-unquote, flirting, how are they identifying flirting versus other interpersonal behavior? One, that's a big question, and maybe they answered that, but they didn't talk about that. The other thing is, is they're just saying that there's differences between boys and girls. So basically what they're saying is that boys and girls at the age of three have been shown to have different ways of interacting and that this proves that we have a genetic disposition that is gender-based about flirting. So they're not saying that three-year-old girls flirt in a stereotypical way, like, like older girls and older women. They're just saying that there's differences. So just sit with that for a second. That's just, that's an interesting claim. But also, the nail in the coffin on this, to me, is that there have been many studies showing that boys and girls show socialization at a very early age, meaning that very young children will exhibit attitudes that are within the culture at a very young age. Again, parents don't overtly teach their children about stereotypes, and sometimes they do, but it's, it's very implicit. And, and even when parents are trying really hard 
not to pigeonhole kids. You know, like if a girl wants to play with trucks, they don't discourage her from doing that. Even when you do that, you can't protect children from the culture at large. Children watch TV. They they are at the supermarket and they, they see things and they really observe. They look at magazine covers, this sort of thing. They notice that, that women wear dresses and boys wear pants and it's on the restroom doors. The way you identify men and women on a restroom door is the icon for a woman is a dress and the icon for a man is, is wearing pants. So these, these images are everywhere and young children will start to, they say, oh, well, I'm a boy, um, therefore blank. And oh, well, I'm a girl, therefore blank. So the fact that they've found differences in children all the way back at the age of three doesn't necessarily mean that those differences are genetically determined. It, it might be, but it, it also seems equally possible that culture has affected these children. And as I've said in previous episodes, the only way to really know that difference is to experiment on humans by raising them in a biodome where you cut them off from culture and then you measure their behavior. And we just can't do that for ethical reasons. Thank God we can't do that. But that would be the only way to know. Otherwise, a lot of this is guesswork. And in order to get published, you can't be guessing. You have to be making claims. And evolutionary psychologists, in order to get published, make these claims. And I'm making a lot of uh, assumptions here on their behavior. But in order to get published, they, they make these claims and hope that no one will notice that they're just skipping over the idea of socialization. But, but I sure noticed, <laughs> as you can tell. And I hope you do too. Not that I want to tear down people, but I think if people are going to take us seriously, if they're going to take psychology seriously, if they're going to take evolutionary psychology seriously, these questions have to be addressed in the writing. Another criticism I have of this study is that, along with a lot of evolutionary psychology studies, it only involved heterosexual people. Homosexual people really throw a wrench into evolutionary psychology science. Because how can you say that you have a innate disposition to seek out a particular kind of female when you are a gay male and you're not attracted romantically to women at all? You know, they believe, again, that men evolved a psychological mechanism that's universal, that men are attracted to young, beautiful women. There's things about hip to waist ratio where the ideal woman has like a 0.7 hip to waist ratio, meaning that meaning that their waist is 70% the width of their hips. And there's all these sorts of things. Well, what about gay men who aren't attracted to women at all, who don't want to be romantic with women? Um, how do they figure that out? According to their theory, those gay men should seek out a strangely formed men that have humongous hips and very small waists. And that just isn't true. So a lot of these studies will just completely ignore homosexuals, won't even mention them, won't include them in this study, because if they do, it, it really challenges a lot of their findings. And I find that to be oppressive and heterosexist. Imagine if we, by extension, uh, you know, imagine if women ruled the world and they ruled the scientific community, and they decided that they were going to do a study on flirting, and they only looked at women flirting. And they came up with particular findings, and they said, oh, okay, well, clearly, you know, our respondents, they, they really respond to 
this sort of thing in men. Therefore, everyone flirts in this particular way, men included. I think most of us would say, hey, wait a second, you only have women respondents. That's kind of a problem. You probably should look at men too, right? Well, it's exactly the same thing when you exclude homosexuals. When you're just studying heterosexuals, and then you claim that you have discovered a universal human psychological mechanism, that doesn't make any sense. Because you're excluding a whole population of people, 5-10% of the population. That's a major problem. Now, uh, I'll, I'll conclude this section with the following quote from the authors. They, they did, to their credit, say the following. Flirtatious behaviors and their underlying motives may have both socialized and innate elements. So this is the only mention of culture and socialization. And they're being responsible in this way. I've talked about other research on other episodes where they don't even mention this. And I find that to be very irresponsible. So... Here they say, you know, flirtatious behaviors might be socialized. There might be both innate elements and socialized elements within flirtatious behaviors. I commend these authors for having this one sentence in, buried in the article. I think that they should really talk more about this. It, it really should be a major caveat at, at the beginning of every evolutionary psychology article. There should be a, a disclaimer at the beginning or some kind of discussion like, well, we all know that it's difficult to prove that something is innate when things could certainly be socialized, but we're proceeding forward in the effort of science to see what we can find and maybe we'll answer these questions at a later time. But we're going to gather data and we're going to make some claims that maybe it's innate and maybe it's maybe it's socialization. We'll, we'll, we'll just have to find out. So if they you know say that, then I say, great, go for it. And these authors kind of did that, which I commend. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear more or you hate what you hear and you want to yell at me, please go to psychologyinseattle.com. Go to the contact us page and send us an email. We love hearing from our listeners and we don't get a lot of emails, so we can pretty much guarantee that we'll read your email, particularly if you write nice things. So please do that because when we don't get any emails or support from our fans, we forget that you're out there and then we say, you know what, maybe we should just pack it up and go home and not do this podcast anymore. Not that we sulk. Well, maybe a little bit of sulking, but, but we only do this because people are presumably listening. And uh, if we don't have any evidence that anyone's listening, then we stop doing it. We don't need a lot of people to listen. We just need, you know... Sometimes I think it's like my mom and like a few other people listening, and that's good enough for me. Um, so please do that. Also, you can go to the Support Us page and follow some of the instructions on how to support us because, again, your support means a lot to us. And, and you know, it's really the least you can do. I mean, come on. We work our asses off for this podcast, and, and you're just sitting there listening. You're just sitting there listening, just, just being a mooch of information. You're a, you're a podcast moocher. So pay it forward or wait, reciprocate. Don't pay it forward. Reciprocate and go to psychologyinseattle.com and, and show your support, please. It, it, it's really appreciated. It's not, this isn't a corporation, you know. Uh, we're a very small operation and every little thing is very much appreciated. And thank you to those people who have already shown their support in one way or another. All right. So again, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me and please take care of yourself.